Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Can You See Me? ANSI NFR, sponsored by Bulwark. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Derek Sang, Technical Training Manager at Bulwark. In over 20 years of involvement with the flame-resistant clothing industry, Derek has developed and conducted more than 250 educational and informational seminars on the hazards of arc flash and flash fire. He is a recognized subject matter expert as well as a qualified safety sales professional and certified environmental health safety professional, among other qualifications. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into this presentation. Derek, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you for the kind introduction, and good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are listening and participating with us today. And to echo what Kevin said, thank you very much for taking your valuable time to uh, learn a little bit more about ANSI, and, and particularly ANSI and FR, and high-vis safety apparel, and focusing on FR, because as Kevin said, my background is I'm an FR guy. Uh, so with that uh, disclaimer, everybody does disclaimers today, so obviously in the next 35 to 45 minutes or so, this is an informational uh, presentation for those purposes only, and all the decisions you all make off after that are, are on yourselves there. So let's get started. High-vis safety apparel, FR, and ARC-rated garments. So first and foremost, let's take care of that title. FR and AR, just to clarify, all ARC-rated garments by default are flame-resistant. The reason we make those de designations is because not all flame-resistant garments are ARC-rated. And uh, in order to get into being ARC-rated, obviously we have to do additional testing along those lines to have uh, that label designation. So we'll talk a little bit today about what makes a garment high-vis, what goes into uh, that category. We'll review the hazard a little bit, obviously in big broad brush strokes here today, uh, because in 45 minutes we're definitely not going to get down to the meats and potatoes. We'll talk a little bit about what ANSI is, what the standard is, uh, what changed from 2010 to 2015, um, and kind of review all those things. We'll talk about some of the industries that are affected, some things that you should probably be you know, making note of and kind of checking off uh, within your organization as more and more high-vis safety apparel is becoming relevant in what we do uh, every single day. So with that, 
let's get uh, dive right into this. Oh, my apologies, we're going back and forth here. So how does visibility work? What are some of the key components that helps us uh, work in and around uh, what's going on here? So first and foremost, fluorescence. The ability for color to be easily detected uh, by the human eye. So we, we know certain things about fluorescence. The, where fluorescence does the majority of its work, whether it's in a shirt, whether it's in a vest, or what combination, what, where it does all its work primarily and where it's most effective is in our daylight hours. Uh, not necessarily low light, but in the regular daylight hours, that's where that background color, that fluorescence, is doing uh, the majority of the work. So counter to that, it's not very effective in uh, no light and definitely low light and nighttime environments. So we have to then take that fluorescence and we add retroflectivity to it. So now you've got a combination high-vis safety garment. And that retroflectivity is achieved through what really, you know, things like 3M and others, their glass bead technology. That's where the surface area returns a portion of the light that is directed to it. It reflects off of it. That's where at nighttime it's very effective, and that's where your, what we call striping, is doing the majority of the work. So as you can see in the slide here, they are very effective. I mean, glass bead technology as it stands today on good quality garments, and that's what we talk about when we're looking at whether it's FR, AR, or in this case, high-vis safety apparel. When it's done right, it works really, really well. So here you see the retro uh, reflective portion doing the bulk of the work. And then obviously, as we talked about the fluorescence doing the work in daylight hour, striping is not as uh, effective in daylight environments. The next big piece when we add, this is kind of like the third leg of the stool. Think about it, we've got the fluorescence, the background, we've added the glass bead technology, the retroreflective taping. Now we have to strategically locate it to where we now include what's called biomotion. We are programmed as humans within our circuitry to identify the human form. Obviously, you go back to whatever that makes sense. You, you want to be out there, you know, chasing down and hunting deer, not chasing down necessarily and hunting our own so we, we are innately able to identify the human form. So when we strategically locate the retroreflective taping, we create what's called biomotion. And we can also see that as our eyes are naturally drawn to the form and then naturally drawn to movement. Biomotion states that reflective components should be positioned on the arms and legs in such a way that the human form is more recognizable and limb movement separates a person from their background. 
So you can easily see how we have come up with harnesses. That's a very traditional look. You can see there on the forearm, you've got the, the retroreflective glass bead taping there, and then also down at the knee level and again at the calf. And obviously when we get into what exactly ANSI says, it's the amount of this stuff that ultimately separates the classes. How much background, how much taping, etc. determines whether it's going to be type O, class that's going to be type R, class 2, type R, class 3, public safety 2 and 3 and etc. It's the combination of these three things that ultimately determine those. So what is the hazard? What are we kind of, you know, talking about here and if the easiest thing to think about is if you look at forklifts for example, OSHA estimates that there's roughly about one and a half million lift operators in the U.S. Uh, they average close to 3,000 citations uh, for powered industrial truck standards. They're typically in the top 10. Whenever you look at, you know, in my world, I look at the top 10 citations. I see electricals there two or three times, lift trucks, fall from heights, all those stuff. These are kind of the traditional go-tos that you still see where we need a lot of improvement upon. They're the second leading cause of machine-related deaths in the workplace, struck by uh, the injuries up to anywhere. You see the number of fatalities there. You see the large amounts of injuries, large amount of serious injuries, 60 lost work days, et cetera. So the most common approach to some of this stuff is obviously we want to look at our hierarchy of safety. So if you look at our hierarchy, you've got elimination, you want to substitute the hazard, engineer the hazard out, put in administrative controls to where there's uh, good things in there as far as you know things like training. And then last line of defense, obviously, is PPE. So if we want to eliminate, have your lift trucks working in and around areas where pedestrians aren't allowed. Uh, if you can't do that, separate them. Uh, make sure that there are pedestrian doors, machine doors, people follow pathways, those kind of things. Uh, engineering controls, uh, motion sensors, mirrors, barriers, those kind of things can help. Then obviously we talked about training. And then the last line of defense is PPE. Uh, if you think about a warehouse environment, and uh, you've probably seen videos on this, when you have people wearing regular everyday work clothing, walking in and amongst stacks, and then walking in and amongst these machines, they're hard to see. You can change that dramatically by having vests implemented, by people wearing shirts that have fluorescency, et cetera, and so that in that low light environment within many of these facilities, you can dramatically improve things when uh, people are coming and going that can be seen. Does it work? Well, if you haven't seen the videos, if you haven't seen the stills, we'll share some of the stuff uh, with you here. Remember we said in daylight, it's the fluorescence, it's the color that's doing the work. These are staged at approximately 100 and 200 feet, and you can easily see how the non-fluorescent backgrounds and the non-tapes are already difficult to see even in daylight hours. A little bit of shadowing in the foreground there, you have a tough time seeing that navy shirt over those the denim. 
and away in the background, even though that uh, navy uh, coverall is in the daylight, it's still not as easy to see. So dramatically improved just even with the change of background color, adding a little bit of striping, things dramatically change. A little bit of both. So now you're getting into low light, you're getting into dust conditions. You can see how having fluorescency combined with the retroreflective tape immediately makes huge difference in what you can see. It's almost, you really have to pay attention and also have to have known that there was four mannequins there. You have to have known that the mannequin on, in the foreground on the far right was in navy over navy and the mannequin in the far left in the background was in a navy coverall because they are virtually undetectable even in dusk without any kind of uh, tape to aid in you seeing them. Then obviously at night it all depends on the tape. It all depends on what is reflecting back to that light source. Uh, what's reflecting back to that driver on a highway. This is where the tape is doing all the work because there's only three forms that are available in the foreground and three forms that are available in the background and you can start to see the difference between class two and class three because the class three you can see the lower leg, you can see the clearly outline of that human form the class two kind of looks a little bit like uh, you know two lines floating in there. So that's where the bio motion is. You can clearly detect that that's a human form based on the strategic location of that striping. So what is ANSI? So it's the American National Standards Institute. The Institute is a private, not-for-profit organization, came in and around 1980, that oversees the creation and the use of thousands of norms and guidelines that directly impact businesses in nearly every sector. That's a long-winded, fancy way of saying, you guys are very instrumental through ICEA in writing and implementing the standards and workplace safety today. And we are familiar with tons of ANSI standards from our footwear to our hand protection, eye protection, head protection. And now we have in 107, we have them in high-vis uh, safety apparel. So what really changed from the 2010 standard into where we are in 2015? Well, it's kind of interesting because even though the standard was kind of obviously finished and ready to go in 2015, it really didn't start impacting us until late 16 and early 17. And even as a workwear apparel company, we, we had to work very hard to kind of understand uh, how this was impacting uh, the workplace. We had always been and always understood uh, high-vis safety apparel enhanced visibility apparel, where and when it met, but understanding what happened here, 
we had to go in and go, okay, what did they really do? Well, in 2010, 2011, you, you, you had two distinct separate standards. One was for our public safety and one was for our roadways. So what they did, and, you know, instead of having to revise two standards that were somewhat similar and go through two different update processes and deal with, they said, look, there's enough similarities here and it doesn't make sense for us to spending all this time updating, do let's combine the standards. So basically they took the roadway uh, 107 and then 207, which was public safety, and they combined them into what we have today, which is the 107. We're not going to talk a lot about the public safety guys today, uh, but really the, the biggest difference, and when we do say, well, what separates public safety from our uh, general industry or our roadway guys or even what you're going to learn about in typo, they have to have access to a utility belt, whether they're EMTs, whether they're uh, firefighters, or whether they're other kind of you know police officers and um, first responders etc they typically have very important tools that they need to access quickly and they can't have garments getting in the way so they've allotted and given special allotment to adjust the the size and dimensions of these garments so that they can access the belts that's my layman's way of, uh, of easy explaining what the difference between uh, from an industrial standpoint and from a public safety standpoint. So they did a couple things along with combining the standards. The other one they did is they talked about uh, reducing the amount of area so that we could get from into a reasonable size for people who have uh, smaller builds. We developed uh, type O for a unique, different uh, industry. And then obviously they came up with new requirements uh, for labeling in and around, especially what we focus on from an FR standpoint. So as I said, they combined the standard, uh, they combined it to create a single high safety apparel standard. It allowed them to be more efficient in their updates. We had, instead of two simultaneous kind of running standards and having to work on all those things. Now we just focus on uh, the one standard. Smaller size safety garments. This was really huge. Uh, think about it. You've probably already, as uh, back in the day when you were driving around in the summer and there was road work going on and we had flaggers and you notice sometimes on those flaggers that that safety vest seemed to, you know, uh, my mom always used to say, look at that poor person, they're getting drowned in that vest. Because sure enough, it was kind of hanging off a shoulder, it didn't really fit right. Well, they finally decided, look, those background requirements and those taping requirements are very important, but there's a greater hazard by having an ill-fitting garment. So let's make some considerations to where we can downsize the garment make some considerations to reduce the background requirement, reduce the amount of everything to make sure that the garment fits well because the greater hazard was having an ill-fitting garment. Whether or not I could see or not was secondary. If I was getting hung up on stuff, if I could potentially get caught in things, if I tried to move and I stumbled because it didn't fit me correctly, those were all greater hazards than whether or not I could actually be seen. So they made some really good common sense adjustments here by allowing the smaller sizes. 
So that was exactly the thought behind all this. Uh, for type R class 2, they were able to reduce it by 30%, and for type R class 3, down to 25%. So you actually went from, instead of having, I believe at the time, the smallest one you could get was, was a large, now we can actually get down into what's considered even mediums and smalls, so they can definitely help some of our slider-built uh, employees. The other big thing they did is they created uh, types. So you have the new type O that we'll talk about, type R, which is our traditional type R, class 2 and class 3 that we're very familiar with. Type P is our public service, and they also have class 2 and class 3. And type O is ANSI class 1. It's uh, very limited as far as background colors, it allows for uh, limited uh, taping, but it does provide guidelines and it does provide garments now that in those low light environments that traditionally have not had any guidance as far as providing high-vis safety apparel for the people, now they do. Uh, for the most part, our Type R, Class 2 and Class 3, uh, hasn't changed. That's still exposure to traffic and vehicles on the highway. Uh, that's low light conditions, whether you're working dusk and dawn, uh, bad weather, fog, all those things. So that's your traditional uh, class two and class three. The other thing they did, and this is where we were really impacted as Bulwark Protective Apparel goes, was the new labeling requirements for high-vis safety apparel that has flame-resistant properties. And that was the challenge, because define flame-resistant properties. Well, the reason or the rationale behind uh, what they did here was people were, and I won't use a technical term here, I'll say people were kind of playing pretty loosey-goosey with the definition of FR when it came to uh, vests, when it came to things like rain gear, when it came to things to where they were going on top of arc-rated or FR clothing. So the folks at ANSI thankfully recognize this and they provide some clear definitive guidelines in order to be marketed and uh, advertised as having flame-resistant properties. In order to have FR in the label, in order to be considered flame-resistant, you had to meet at least six of the standards. Now, one of the standards, since this was written, has been kind of put on the shelf, and that, that's 2302. So the ones that are prevalent today are ASTM 1506. That's how you get your... Uh, ARC rating for, for garments, that's your ATPV. Uh, 2733, that's ASTM 2733, that's for uh, rain gear that goes into uh, flash fire hazards. 1891 is rain gear that goes into ARC flash hazards. NFPA 1977 is the wildland fire standard, and obviously NFPA 2112 is our flash fire. So that is what those... Uh, vests and shirts and anything else that is high-vis safety apparel must reference one of those standards in order to be considered flame resistant. If it can't do that, then it has to be labeled not FR. Why did they do that? Primarily to help 
those who have to make those kinds of decisions for their employees. If there is a flash fire or an arc flash hazard that's determined, how do we help those safety professionals in procuring the right stuff for their people? Because the market was flooded with substandard vests and high-vis safety apparel that people unknowingly because it said that it's flame resistant, it's got to be flame resistant. Unfortunately, they were never tested for the hazard. The testing that they achieved those flame resistances to were incorrect. And people were, in my opinion, unfortunately, or with the best of intentions, putting their people in harm's way. So this was recognized, and if you have an ANSI-compliant garment, and it says that it's FR in it, it's going to meet one of those standards, and it's going to provide the level of protection that your people need so that even though they're wearing it on top of ARC-rated and FR clothing, it's still going to allow that clothing to do its job, and it's not going to impede, interfere, or, worst-case scenario, ignite and burn on top of their ARC-rated FR clothing. So this was pretty good uh, by the committee in, in order to make this change. So what are some of the simples and where we are today? So what really changed from 2010 to 2015? Well, type O, which is off-road, type R, which is roadway, and then type P is our public server, are now just the job classifications. That's what you have. Then the classes are your class one, which can only occur in type O. You can't have R type one. So type R and type P then are going to be class 2 and or 3. That's it. So they're, they're, the old traditional, the term level from 2010 has been discontinued. So you don't have class 2, level 1, class 3, level 2, all those kind of things. That terminology is one away. It's now type O, type R, type P. And for type O, it's going to be class 1. For type R and P, it's going to be classes 2 and 3. Uh, that's what the decision-making tree is, so to speak. Uh, a lot of folks today, for the most part, in our Type R world are defaulting to uh, Class 3. Then they're not having to make a decision between 2 and 3. So before we jump into some of the examples of what these garments look like, uh, they've asked us here to take a, a quick poll. Labels can often be misleading. What should you look for to know your product is ANSI 107 2015 compliant? And your options are, it must state the garment meets ANSI 107 2015 standard. It must specify whether it's type O, type R, or type P on the label. It must contain pictograms showing that it is high-vis safety apparel and what type it is, and it must include whether or not it is FR, and if so, which standards were used to evaluate the flame resistance, or all of the above. So I'll give you a couple seconds to uh, click on that and think about it. Although that almost 100%. Guys are pretty awesome for. Okay, great job. Correct answer is all of the above. That's what you should be looking for. 
So just a quick snapshot of some of the in industries that are affected with high-vis safety apparel. The biggest one and the newest one, obviously, for uh, the marketplace is understanding type O. Type O is just think of anything that's not traditional, where it would be off-road. Uh, think of uh, going into those uh, parking structures, and you, you see it yourself, all those prime spots with that big valet sign, and those guys are hustling back and forth. It would be great to be able to see them in those light, uh, low light conditions. So definitely parking service uh, type workers. Uh, we mentioned the, the prime example with uh, power trucks, warehouses. Warehouses are a prime area to, to look at having some kind of uh, reflectivity and some kind of fluorescency in our garments. Uh, we ourselves in our own distribution centers have, have Notice a mass difference in being able to just see people when when we did a video of our own folks and when we changed them from regular standard clothes into high vis safety apparel, uh, pardon the pun, it was literally night and day. You could not, you're like, wow, how well those people uh, and, uh, stood out. It was pretty amazing. Uh, oil and gas, uh, rights of uh, roadway, especially in the drilling community. Uh, when they were, were going up and down those temporary roads, those new roads where uh, roads did not exist before. Our mining workers, uh, mining roads, all those things that where we think about, that's where your, your typo is going to go into. Uh, our type R, class 2 and class 3, obviously roadway uh, conditions, our, our flaggers, our DOT, mining workers, anybody in and around roads, uh, all those uh, stay the same, as does uh, type P and public safety. So just some uh, examples real quick. Uh, type R, yeah, you can see here what we're seeing the trend in, just to give you uh, some ideas. We're starting to see a trend away from vests and, and into shirts. Some of the improvements that we've seen, especially in the taping technology, uh, segmented tape, heat seals tapes, they're taking away that scratchy, scruffy feeling when you had to uh, sew on the reflective tape. Whether the fabric was lightweight, comfortable or not, you were putting a tape on there that impeded uh, moisture management. It made the garment significantly hotter because it didn't uh, – they – they washed and wear differently. That big, heavy tape uh, kind of perk, you know, would, would pucker up in certain areas. And it just wasn't either A, a good look, and it definitely wasn't fun to wear. As this market segment has uh, increased, the resources, the uh, innovation, and all those things have increased with it. So we're starting to see... Uh, advances, especially in the taping, the application of the taping, the durability of the taping, uh, which helps that way. Uh, you're seeing different dyeing technologies because the hardest thing uh, for ANSI, and especially in, in, in the FR world, is getting that background fluorescency to uh, hold true through the whole requirement and be able to believe, uh, to be able to be labeled uh, ANSI compliant. That's been a struggle for the marketplace, and especially in the FR side of the space. So you're starting to see uh, dyeing technologies uh, improve. So everything, as the marketplace moves forward with this, and we're seeing a greater, greater adoption, 
uh, in our traditional markets of uh, shirts and pants wanting to have this technology to make their employees safer as they're in and around uh, these environments. You're seeing color block technology come into place because obviously if you have a light color on the background, you want to maximize the durability of that, the longevity of the garments in service. You're seeing color blocking come into place. Those high soil areas now are going to uh, have some darker colors so that the whole garment doesn't become something that's uh, not nice to look at. Uh, so things like that are improving. Uh, our Type O products, uh, our Type O products, uh, you can see here, obviously, the background fluorescency is not an issue when it comes into Type O. Type O is the strategic placement of uh, some reflectivity uh, capability in tapes. Uh, you can see the harness program there. Uh, one of the things that I think is neat is I learned about this system when we look, uh, especially uh, you know, at markets outside of the United States. Uh, many have asked for the traditional uh, Canadian striping. If you look at a garment that's sold into Canada, Canada's high-vis standards are a little bit different. Uh, they're not as stringent on the background color, but they're a little bit more stringent on the reflectivity. If you look at a garment that goes into Canada, you'll see that the Canadian garments have an X on the back, and they have the traditional harness that is usually seen on the front. And uh, when I asked about that, I learned that's so the operator of the vehicle, when they see the X, they know they're looking at someone's back. And they know that that person cannot see them. They cannot see that vehicle. When they see the harness, they now, again, they may or might, may not be able to, but they at least know that that's the front of the person that they're approaching as opposed to approaching the person's back. I thought that was a really neat uh, way of, of utilizing striping, and that, that's a mandatory striping pattern uh, up in Canada. So I thought that was so what does it mean for shirts, pants, and coveralls and vests uh, overall? Type O really is some reflectivity. Uh, the background color is, is not uh, as important. The fluorescency is not as important. Uh, type R and Type S, Class 2, that's the minimum that you're allowed to wear on a roadway. Uh, and then Class 3 is kind of based on the hazard assessment. You have increased reflectivity, increased background. It includes the sleeves, for example. That's where you get the maximum biomotion. If you remember back to those stills where you saw uh, daylight hours, dusk hours, and then you saw the nighttime hours, you saw the difference of that as that class two separate, that class three garment separated itself from the class two garment. That's where you saw the the knees and the calves, you saw the, the upper arm, uh, lower arm, you saw the biomotion uh, coming into play. So we're getting ready to wrap up here uh, shortly. We'll have some time uh, for, for your questions. Uh, but kind of, just kind of a bonus thing to, to think about. When I looked at the background, especially in the FR world, and we talked about what the challenges in the FR world were. When we looked at our end users, our wearers out in the field, what can go wrong when it came to vests and rainwear? 
a couple of examples here. Well, one, the example on the left is, is you have no idea uh, what that vest is just by looking at it. You can already see that he has taken some liberties with his uh, arc-rated clothing, FR clothing that it is. It's untucked. The sleeves are rolled up. And things like when, he, if he pulled that vest from a tool room and he's in a tool room that has both non-FR and FR vests, how does he ensure that he got the right vest? There are things like that you need to consider. Uh, the rain gear on the right, what can go wrong there with rain gear? So as we started uh, looking at these two primarily, you know, high-vis safety apparel items, and we looked at, you know, obviously rain gear is more than just high-vis safety apparel. You're actually looking at uh, environmental protection. Uh, what are our concerns? First and foremost, if you like the webinar and if you're in the FR world and there's, you want to make a couple notes of something, what I always tell my folks to do is just, just make a note and go back to your facility and check your vests and check your rainwear for a couple things. First and foremost, if you look in that label and you don't see even whether you're arc flash or flash fire, if you don't see an ATPV in the label, that should be concerning. Uh, secondly, if you only see one standard, and by one standard I mean it says this garment has been determined to be FR either by ASTM 2302, ASTM D6413, or NFPA701, that should be a huge red flag. So what do those standalone standards mean? In and of themselves, they mean nothing. Uh, for example, 2302, that's a standard that I mentioned uh, has been withdrawn. It's kind of been put on the shelf as they're going to uh, revisit it and hopefully rewrite it and re-implement it. It is the heat-resistant, flame-resistant labeling standard it will tell you absolutely nothing about the flame-resistant properties of that garment. If you are in an arc flash or a flash fire hazard and you're implementing a vest or rainwear with that standard on it, it it's virtually meaningless. Uh, if you read the standard, it says not to be used in an arc flash or a flash fire. So folks were able to meet the bare minimum requirements of heat resistance and flame resistance per the standard, and they were marking them into areas where arc flash and flash fire garments were being utilized, and they were marking them into companies as FR vests and FR rain gear. They will fail miserably. Uh, consequently, and, and, uh, is ASTM 6413. This is a standard, it's the vertical flame test. Uh, many of you have seen videos of this. It's a small cabinet, it's basically a Bunsen burner uh, that is ignited and there's a 12 second exposure to fabric that is suspended in a metal frame above the, uh, the Bunsen burner. And at 12 seconds it goes out, that flame has to self extinguish, it has to have a certain amount of char length to begin evaluating additionally for whether that fabric should be used in uh, flame-resistant, ultimately, uh, arc-rated garments. It is not a performance standard. Whether you pass or fail that 
as a fabric, whether it's a high-vis safety uh, apparel, uh, potential apparel fabric or as a rainwear fabric, it's not a performance standard. It will tell you absolutely nothing about how that fabric will perform in an arc flash or a flash fire. There is so much other testing needed, so many other standards that need to be passed in order to go into those hazards, that as a standalone, it tells you nothing. There is lots of rain gear out in the marketplace today that has that as the only standard that it's met, and it's getting sold into the marketplace today. So cautionary tales there. The next one is NFPA 701. We see this a little bit in our rain gear where we see a lot of it is in our high-vis safety apparel vest. 100% polyester high-vis ANSI vest that is FR, and you look in the label and it says 2NFPA701. That is not even a garment standard. It is... Uh, a standard in the hospitality industry. It's used for draperies and linens. It's uh, it's used in some other kind of. So think about it. A large hotel, huge drapes on the wall. They are treated with a fire retardant chemical to slow the combustion, so I can get from the sixth floor out to the parking lot and safety. It has nothing to do with high vis safety apparel, but we see that a lot. The other one you've got to be careful of, there are companies out there marketing their vests as self-extinguishing. But it will still say in the fine print, you'll see a big SE on the label. Self-extinguishes because it meets ASTM 6413. The garment put itself out by definition. They have to tell you, and they do tell you in very, very small print in that label, that yes, this is non-FR but it self-extinguishes. What does it matter? It's non-FR. You will have a big hunk of melting plastic on top of your arc-rated FR clothing, and you will have injuries. So be very, very cautious in these areas when it comes to high-vis safety apparel. It's been, like I said, a little loosey-goosey, especially probably in the last five, six years. And thanks to ANSI in 2015, they really tightened up those labeling requirements. They really tightened up for our safety professionals who have to make those decisions what the criteria of a FRAR vest should be, what FRAR rain gear should be. So if you have ASTM 1506 in your vest and you have an ATPV of 4.5 calories per centimeter squared, you've got a good vest. If you have rain gear that says ASTM 2733 and you have a flash fire hazard and you work in oil and gas or in a refinery, you've got good rain gear. If it says ASTM 1891, and that's good rain gear because why? It's been tested to the arc flash. So as a utility lineman climbing a pole during storm situations, I know I've got the right rain gear that's going to do the job. Better yet, have your rain gear that says 2733 and 1891. That way you're covered for both hazards. So that's kind of, I'm going to step off of my soapbox a little bit on that one. That's kind of one of those... Uh, I don't know if you can call it a pet peeve or not when it comes to high-vis safety apparel in the FR world, uh, but that's one of the things that's always caught my attention for the uh, last couple of years. So with that, we're coming up on 45 minutes. We're right on, right on schedule there for 15 minutes of Q&A.
Uh, like we said at the beginning, like Kevin said at the beginning, if we get to all your questions, fantastic. If we do not get to your questions, what the great folks at NSC do is, is they take all those questions, they package them up for me, I get them in an email, and I will get you an answer uh, within the, with, probably within two or three days uh, of us getting the information to us. So with that, again, I thank you all for taking your valuable time. Hopefully there was a couple nuggets that you were able to dig out of this, and uh, I look forward to your questions. All right, excellent. Great job, Derek. Uh, thanks for your insights and expertise. Before we start the Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you don't happen to see the survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. With that, we'll get to some questions. First, have any studies been conducted related to high-vis clothing and how it attracts insects? Wow, that's a good one. Uh, I did get a question recently because the, uh, the high-vis yellows seem to be a little bit more interesting to our insect population than the orange is. Uh, and I dug around at that time, and I could not find any definitive uh, studies done on the attracting of and I'm going to I'm going to guess that we're talking about like wasps and bees and things like that because they think we're a giant flower uh, out in the field there. So I do know that it's a nuisance. I do know that there have been uh, incidents when people have been stung because of that, and the the connection is there. How strong it is and how much it really is, uh, I haven't been able to find anything. If anybody does find something, that would be great. Uh, to get there because I do know it's a concern and I do know it's been and brought up. So that's a really long-winded way of saying I don't really have a lot to add other than uh, there have been instances, it's been noted, uh, but I don't know how much work's actually been done on it. I think it'd be a great project for uh, for people who do that. All right, next question asks, is there any truth to the rumor that the color of high-vis safety apparel was changed from orange to yellow to prevent people from being mistaken for traffic barriers? Interesting question again. Uh, there was, and again, this, this, how much of this is urban myth and how much of it is actually, as we were getting in and familiar with the market, uh, yes, uh, they wanted to separate, uh, especially during daylight hours, because that's where your background color comes into effect, is the difference between an orange cone and a human being. Uh, there's been a number, but really what, there's been a number of studies, uh, especially on what the human eye picks up. Uh, even to the point of there was a huge movement, and I'm dating myself because we're probably going back about 25 years now, when fire engines were all changing from red to green uh, because green was uh, easier picked up by the human eye and, and think, but then it, then they all switched back because they determined it wasn't as accurate as they thought it was or the people were so conditioned to fire trucks being red that when they saw green fire trucks, they really kind of, it didn't make that, uh, that intuitive connection. Uh, so there have been studies 
to where which color is better, whether or not they're actually separating them from a orange pylon safety barrier to what makes up a human. Uh, it sounds good on the surface. Again, I haven't read anything definitive uh, to where that was the reason why. Uh, the biggest thing that we've found is that the study in what we pick up and what we see uh, breaks things up because I'll tell you, uh, on the roadway, uh, yellow and or that yellow green is great. Uh, if you go out uh, off road a little bit and you're out in the bushes and you're cutting down some uh, foliage on the side of the road, it's it's sometimes it's even hard to see uh, when they're on the side of the road and they're in you know knee high grass and they're bending over doing something. That separation it would be almost easier if they were in orange. So uh, yin yang. Two sides of the same coin. Again, I apologize, I don't have a more definitive answer for you. What are your recommendations for warehouse or shipping personnel? That's that's perfect. That's that's right into your uh that's your new typo. Uh you saw some examples uh that we pulled uh that what they look like, whether you get into there's shirt options, there's color, uh, there, there's coverall options, there's there's vest options. Uh, I would, if I'm not doing anything today, uh, I would try a couple of different things. One, depending on what their duties are and how much bending and lifting and things, uh, if the vest fits right and, and it works okay and they can still do everything without that kind of messing them up, uh, in their job duties, go with the, you know, the vest might be the easiest, most economical, universal solution. Uh, if not, definitely get them into uh, some kind of shirt that has some reflectivity there uh, as they're moving in and around, especially if you have power trucks and things like that. It makes sense. It will, it will make a marketable difference, especially when you start uh, talking to your forklift drivers, your power truck drivers, and they're like, wow. It's, it really is so much easier to see these guys. Thanks for doing that. So you, I would take a couple options, do a couple wear trials in there, get a lot of feedback from your people. They're the ones that are doing the jobs. You may have some that work great for vests because of their job duties. Some you might have to convert into uh, shirts because of what they do. Uh, but I would definitely work with a supplier who can get you a couple of the samples and have some people wear test them and make sure they work for you and your environment. In a transit facility, should the workers wear reflective apparel instead of uh, high-vis yellow shirts? I'm sorry, what was the first part of that question? For transit facilities, if the workers should wear reflective apparel instead of high-vis yellow shirts. It all, again, I, I, that depends on your hazard assessment. I mean, if you've got a, because Remember, as we talk about fluorescency, reflectivity, and biomotion are kind of the, the three legs on the stool. Uh, and as the hazard increases, the more of those, the more beefier each leg on the stool is, the stronger the stool is going to be. So if you have a well-lit facility, you work only during daylight hours, that's where the fluorescency does all the work. If you start to get into low light, all right, now retro, the retroreflectivity is going to come in and it's going to start picking up some of the workload. 
And then as the light gets less and less all the way to nighttime, the reflectivity is doing all the work. Biomotion now needs to come into play so that we can easily identify that that's a human. So as you transition through those three components, your personal hazard assessment and your facility will tell you where you need to put the majority of uh, the workload. Is it the background color? Is it the reflective striping? Or is it hence the reflective striping within the biomotion? So which one of those needs to do the work? That's your hazard assessment will tell you that. How does 360-degree hard hat LED safety lights play into reflective apparel? That's a really good question. I'm going to default that to a hard hat guy that is outside of being a garment guy, apparel guy, that's outside of my expertise. My apologies. Next question, uh, what's the wash cycle for high-vis garments? Very good question because it's one of those things to where it's, it's 25 launderings that we have to test it to, that we have to have that background uh, in order to go out there and it's an ANSI uh, 107 garment. It's 25 launderings that fabric has to endure and it has to uh, test out at a certain uh, fluorescency. And that's all measured and all done and it's packaged up, put in a nice package and it's shipped out or it's hung on a shelf and you go in and buy it. Now we all know we get into the real world and we start wiping our hands on it, it gets dirty, it gets grimy, grease. For those then start to diminish exactly what that is. So there are things that we had to learn about. Uh, UV light was very, very tough early on on vests and high-vis safety apparel. Remember I said the dye technology has been improved as this has become a bigger and bigger market segment. We were seeing uh, like folks out in Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico that had tons and tons of UV light. We were seeing high-vis safety apparel was dramatically being affected uh, over time. So they've done a lot of improvements in those die cycles. So once it's up and running and it's in the package, it meets the requirements for ANSI 107. There are no requirements uh, down the road to where it says that it has to do X, Y, or Z, uh, any kind of retesting, anything on that. Most manufacturers will have a default in their label that says, 25 launderings, 50 launderings along those when it comes to uh, really what they're talking about is the background fluorescency to where that back background color technically would be faded. It would not pass uh, what the ANSI requirements are. So there's usually some guidelines in there that we've seen, but there is no requirement for the manufacturers to really communicate that. Are typo garments required in agricultural work? It would default back to what your hazard assessment is. Uh, if you're out in the fields, uh, I'm going to say no, but if you are doing things to where you're traveling up and down those temporary roads, uh, low light environment, uh, and you're putting employees uh, in and around there, I don't see how that is any different than a mining road uh, oil and gas road, uh, your hazard assessment would have to tell you that. 
Do you feel vests pose a catch or entanglement hazard any more than normal work wear, such as T-shirts, long sleeve shirts, or winter work coats? Uh, first part of the question there, Kevin, I'm sorry. If you feel vests pose a catch or entanglement hazard any more than normal work wear? Uh, the old standby. What's your hazard assessment? What's the greater hazard? I mean, if you are, if your job duties are, I basically stand in place and I have X, Y, and Z to accomplish, and your hazard assessment says, no, I'm not climbing up on equipment, uh, I'm not climbing up into a tower, I'm not climbing up onto a pole, uh, I'm not in and out of the vehicle, if you can look at what they're required to do on a day-by-day uh, basis and you watch them work in those vests and you determine that it's not going to be a hang-up hazard, then that's what you determined. You evaluated the PPE and you determined that it's not a, there's not an increased hazard wearing or not. If you do, then I think the by logic it is, a, is a single layer shirt that I'm wearing that is ANSI compliant versus me putting a, a vest on top of it is less of an entanglement or a hang-up hazard, I think you can make a, a determination based on evaluating what they're required to do as far as climbing up, down, in and around. If you're in narrow, confined areas and you're having to move and stuff, it probably doesn't benefit you to have a second layer that is not form-fitting versus a single layer that is. Next question, what must non-FR and FR labels include? Uh, going back to uh, your laundry list there uh, during our poll, uh, and the vast majority hit it, uh, all of the above, that, that is all of the above. They have to, for the FR piece, I have to tell you if, if it is, for example, uh, ARC rated, and it has ASTM 1506 as the standard that it was met in order to be considered FR, you will see a ATPV or an E sub BT, or an ARC rating in there, which will be you know, 4.5 calories per centimeter squared ATPV or 4.5 calories per centimeter squared EBT, either or is an ARC rating, so that's good. Uh, then you'll go through the, the other requirements. The pictogram has to be in there. Uh, you have to notify what the uh, the fabric, what it what it is made of, what, all those things that you would normally see uh, in a label. So the biggest piece for the FR is singling out one of those nationally recognized consensus standards for uh, either a fabric test like ASTM 1506 or a uh, garment test like, for example, 2733 for rainwear, 1891 for rainwear. 1977 for your wildland, and then NFPA 2112, which is your uh, garment for flash fire. Any one of those is going to indicate that those FR properties uh, were established in the actual hazard, not just through a single uh, test like 2302, uh, 6413, the vertical flame test, or a mismatch standard uh, for draperies and linens like NFPA 701. Right, we've got time, I believe, for one more question. Um, is there a specific hazard assessment for clothing or is it just a general hazard assessment? 
It is your, it's, it's your general hazard assessment. I mean, you are going to look to your consensus standards. For example, uh, we're aided a little bit, like for example, in NFPA 2112, it has a sister document, which is NFPA 2113, which walks you through uh, a flash fire hazard for dust, gas, or vapors of ignitable liquid. If those do exist, then you do have a flash fire hazard. So that helps out that way. Uh, NFPA 70E also walks you through what an arc flash hazard is, where your arc flash boundary is, where you need to have your, your specific uh, PPE in your clothing. So all those things, and uh, also into our utilities, when in, you need to be uh, in high-vis safety apparel, and that high-vis safety apparel has to have FR or arc-rated properties, all those help you make that evaluation, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, again, thank you. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but as Derek indicated before the Q&A started, all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to him. Once again, hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to ask, like, I'm sorry, I'd like to thank Derek Sang, everyone at Bulwark, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day.